0: in the chapter 15 of the book of Matthew. And we looked at the Pharisees' rebuke of Yeshua and his Talmudim last week for not keeping the purity laws that they had prescribed. And I want to read the text again because this time we're going to look at the passage and the Pharisees from a slightly different perspective. In our look last week, it came down on the Pharisees a little hard, in tradition a little hard, And today we'll take a little kinder and gentler look. Matthew chapter 15 verse 1 through 4 reads this way. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Yeshua from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands before they eat. Yeshua replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your own tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. So here's the thing. I want to emphasize, and I think I did last week, but I want to emphasize something once again. Yeshua, as we see him come against this tradition, he is not against all tradition. He says, you've set aside the commands of God for the sake of your traditions. And the thing I want to get across to you today is that Yeshua isn't against tradition altogether. What traditions was he against? Well, he was against those that carried people away from the command of God. We just went through a series on basic traditions, and so I don't want to really beleaguer the point, but we do need to get this concept into the series on Matthew for our viewers and listeners. So, uh, but please understand this. One thing. You cannot keep Torah without some form of tradition. Tradition is nothing more than additional teaching that people adhere to. The word for tradition is in the Greek is paradosis. It means teaching. Tradition is nothing more than teaching that is transferred to your walk through life. The Torah requires some form of additional teaching to be carried out. That additional teaching is tradition. And I hear people look at verses like this and then say, I'm, I'm going to follow God and not tradition. Well, the moment they said that, they described their tradition. The very act of deciding not to keep tradition is a tradition. That's what I'm going to do. Someone once said to me, I believe that teaching people Torah is more important than asking them to keep tradition. Well, friends... Teaching Torah is asking someone to keep traditions. So again, understand, the very act of deciding not to keep tradition is a tradition. So the point being, it's impossible to keep Torah without some additional teaching or tradition. You can't avoid it. It's impossible. So that being said, the next thing you have to come to grips with is whose tradition will we follow? If you decide as the person up above that you will not you'll follow no tradition, but merely do what, uh, and keep Torah with what's right in your own eyes, and we are part of a community who has adopted that same tradition of no tradition, just doing what is right in your own eyes, then what happens is the commands of God get blurred. The Torah of God gets blurred. The commands of God are actually destroyed. And we can see this in the Zizit that we used for an example The command of wearing tzitzit is to wear them on the corners of your garment so as to remember the commands of God and to put a thread of blue with linen or white fringe. As I pointed out in the teaching that I did a while back, anciently they were worn so low on the garment because the garments were so long that the wearer would really have a problem seeing his own fringe. And so how did he remember the commands of God? He remembered them by seeing the fringe on everybody else's garments. You wouldn't be able to see your own, right? So I want you to know that if you have everyone in the community wearing fringe after their own design, their own colors, and no community traditions so that you have some wearing them on their belt loops, some as bracelets, as we saw in that teaching we did not too long ago, some as necklaces, instead of the corners of their garments. And then you have others wearing them in whatever colors they want. What happens is, as soon that no one will remember why they're wearing them. Certainly people who come into the congregation will not know. If one person wears them short, so that they're hardly noticeable from the rest of his garment. What good are they to anyone? If someone takes fringe and matches them to the color of their shirt so that they become part of the shirt, how are they noticeable any longer? It it becomes confusion, you see. Someone coming into the community where fringe are being worn uniformly need only ask one person. Why are you wearing fringe on the corner of your garment? Then you can, that person can take them to Numbers chapter 15 and show them scripture where God says, wear them on the corners of your garment so that you will remember the commands of God. And they can see what that means. Someone walking into a congregation where people are doing as they please and whatever's right in their own eyes may never ask the question because... Or if they do, they'll have to ask many questions. And they'll be quite confused when all is said and done because you take them to Numbers 15 to show them why you're wearing them and it says corners of your garment and they ask you, well, then why are you wearing them from your belt loops? Or as a necklace. To another they may ask, it says blue. Why do you have brown? See, maybe they will never associate it with the command again. The point is that the purpose of the command gets lost. It's abolished by the tradition. Not only that, but think about this. I want you to think about something here. The whole reason that many of you are here today is that you have either rejected or you have begun to reject the traditions of the church. You've looked at their traditions of Christmas and Easter, their traditions of sprinkling their children versus the immersion of a committed adult, their traditions of worshiping on the first day instead of on the seventh day. And you said to yourself, I can't do this any longer because I'm losing sight of the commands of God. The commands of God are being abolished. They're not being followed because of these traditions. And once you realize that, maybe you heard vine and branches or you saw out of Zion or you saw a website, you read a book, And you said, hey, Kehillat Sar Shalom keeps the traditions that lead me closer to the command. They don't keep the first day. They don't keep Christmas and Easter. And I can be immersed there. And with these things, the commands of God are fulfilled. They're not lost. And you've made a choice to come to a community whose traditions more closely follow The commands of God and the commands of God are not lost in the tradition. With that in mind, if the elders of the community, let's say the elders went hockey lock this weekend. And they said, you know, we're going to keep Christmas tradition. And you came in on December 1st and there was a Christmas tree up on the thing. Well, many of you would hit the road. You'd say, Caleb, by its tradition, is destroying the commands of God. When someone says to me, I don't want to keep tradition, I just want to keep the commands, it tells me that they really haven't thought through this whole thing. Because what they're saying is not possible. So community traditions understand they can be good, if they lead you closer to the command of God, or they can be bad. And Yeshua knew that. And as we pointed out last week, he kept most traditions, but where he drew the line is where the tradition obliterated the command of God. And that's the yardstick we have to follow. The next thing we should ask is, who has the authority to decide these traditions? Well, Yeshua gives us a clue. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, he says, then Yeshua said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. Traditions are to be cited in the local community and then kept uniformly by the community. That's why Yeshua says the Pharisees are the keepers of the traditions because they were the leaders of the community. So obey them. Later Yeshua will send his disciples out to begin their own communities and as we'll see in the first chapters of Acts, the book of Galatians and Corinthians and so on, those communities will follow the traditions of Yeshua and the elders of the community. So the authority to determine Halakha rests solely in the hands of the elders of the community. That's the way God ordained it. It's the way it is throughout the Bible. We spoke of it in the commentary as well. Appoint judges in the gates of the city. The problem recorded here in Matthew chapter 15 was the Pharisees had taken the purity laws to the point that they were actually abolishing or blurring the commands of God. Were the purity laws important? Were they important? Are they important? Well, you better believe that they were. They're extremely important. Listen to what it says about washing the hands in Exodus chapter 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Take, Make a bronze basin with its stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter into the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they will not die. Well, that sounds important. <laughs> I mean, it's a matter of life and death. You didn't enter the holy place with unclean hands. Imagine what would happen if an unclean person gained access to the inner courts of the temple. And then in his uncleanness he went up and he laid hands on the altar. What would happen? Well, the services in the temple would have to cease. And you can look back at the less, you can look back at the story of Hanukkah and we find that when uncleanness came in contact with the altar it had to be torn down, had to be dismantled and replaced. The services in the temple would be stopped so you can see why this would be important. If you were a priest, your cleanliness was of extreme importance. Well, what the Pharisees had done, the problem is that the Pharisees, in essence, had taken the strict purity laws of the priests and applied them to the people and their everyday life as if they were going to serve in the temple that day. Ah, but those commands weren't for the common people. They were for the priests and so the commands of God are blurred and abolished. So I think we've covered this sufficiently. I mean, we could go into the Mishnah and Talmud and we could stand here for hours and I could bore you with the debates on the topic there just as I could on in the next part on vows and I would leave you sleeping and out of Zion and vine and branches without listeners because they would either go to sleep or change channels and watch something else. But here... There is one more important thing uh, that's important to the next story that Matthew records for us. You have to understand as we go into the next portion that Gentiles were considered unclean as well. A priest could not come in contact with a non-Jew. They could not go into the home of a non-Jew because it would make them unclean and if there was their week to serve in the temple they wouldn't be able to serve for 7 days. Out of a job. We can see this if we go to Acts. and They applied this to all people. Listen to if we go to Acts. Chapter 15 verse 27. Taking with him Peter, he went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. And I spoke about this a bit last week. Yeshua was to be a light to the nations. And this tradition of non-Jews being unclean and their homes unclean would certainly, most certainly be a hindrance to the Jewish disciples going out and spreading the name of Yeshua among the nations. So, here in Matthew, we get this passage on hand-washing and the stringency with, of the purity laws and how the Pharisees had abolished the commands with their overzealous purity laws. And what do we get Next. We get the story of a Gentile woman, of course, hinting at what will happen with the Gentile inclusion into Israel. And it's what's already happening at the time of the writing of the book of Matthew, and Matthew wants his readers to understand this. Because remember, this gospel isn't written for 30 or more years after the death of Yeshua. And Gentiles are are hearing the gospel and coming into the kingdom in droves. We get a story of a Gentile woman. But not only that, understand that as far as non-Jews go, as far as Gentiles go, the Canaanites are at the bottom of the barrel. They were a stumbling block to Israel the whole time they were in the land. There are traditions, there's our Jewish traditions that say no Canaanites will be in the world to come because they were... They are at the bottom of the barrel. Whoever they are today, if you're listening, I apologize. But listen to what happens now in verse 21. Leaving that place, Yeshua withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And so we have this woman who is the low of the low in the minds of the Israelites of the day. And she comes to Yeshua saying, Lord, son of David. And isn't this ironic? The Pharisees above, who were the keepers of the Torah, who were the teachers of Israel, have rejected Yeshua, have tried to disparage Yeshua, questioned his Torah halakha, And that of his disciples. And here we have someone, here we have someone the Pharisees wouldn't even speak to. They wouldn't touch. They wouldn't go into the home of coming to Yeshua saying, Son of David, Lord. In other words, Lord, Messiah. Do you think Matthew is trying to tell us and his people something? I think so, but he's not finished yet. Now remember, I said the Pharisees wouldn't touch or talk to someone like this. Let's see what Yeshua does after this Canaanite woman calls him Lord and son of David. Yeshua did not say a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Amazingly, Yeshua does the same thing the Pharisees would have done. He doesn't speak to or even acknowledge her. He doesn't say a word. Just when you think you've got Yeshua figured out, when you think you have Yeshua's halakha figured out, he does something like this. Which is exactly what the Pharisees would have done. Same Pharisees he just rebuked for their stringent observance of the purity laws would have done. But Yeshua is teaching. And he's teaching one of the more important lessons of the Bible for us. He's teaching his disciples something that will be made clear in the book of Acts and he's teaching us as disciples as well. The disciples see he's, he does not acknowledge her and so they say, send her away. Only after they say, send her away, does he speak. And the words that he says are to send her away. He says, I've only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? Listen. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. He says, You don't take the children's food and give it to the dogs. Dogs are an unclean animal. And it's a term that was used of people who were unclean. It's a term that was used for non-Jews. If we look in Deuteronomy, it's the Hebrew word uh, for dog is Caleb, and it's used as a metaphor for prostitute. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 18, Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow, for even both these are an abomination to the Lord thy God. So understand the nature of what Yeshua is saying is that you do not throw the food of the children, the chosen, to the unclean, the Gentiles. And the woman replies, Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Yeshua answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Your daughter is healed it from that very hour. And what does he wants his disciples to understand from this? Well, first he wants his disciples to understand that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the good news. Paul knew it as well. He says to the Jew first and then to the non-Jew. His disciples are going to be the ones to carry this message out to the nations. The fact is He will be very specific in sending them out to the nations. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16 it says, The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Yeshua had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Yeshua came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, Yeshua is preparing his disciples for Israel's rejection of him. And he's sending his disciples to the nations. He came first to the Jew, but then to the nations. The Pharisees rejected him. And he heals this child of the lowest of the low of Gentiles in Jewish thought of the day. Paul knew this too. He says this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to the last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel is to the Jew first. And Shaul understood this. Everywhere he goes, where does he go first? To the synagogue. He preaches to the Jew first. Now, there are non-Jews in the synagogue who also heard and many accepted. But make no mistake, Shaul was there to preach to the Jew first. He understood the order of things. And the reason that the message went to the Jew first was simple. Israel's mission was to be a light to the nation. They didn't do such a good job, except in one of their sons, Yeshua. He did a real good job. But Shaul understood this was not just the way of the good news either. It wasn't just the good news that was to the Jew first. Listen to what Romans chapter 2 verse 9 says. And there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Did trouble and distress come upon the Jew first? Well, I guess it did. About 40 years after Yeshua's death, the temple was destroyed and never rebuilt, and tens of thousands of Jews will die. In less than 100 years, Israel will be decimated, and the Jewish people will be dispersed from the land. And will not return for nearly two centuries. The Jew was first for their rejection. Is the time of the Gentiles coming to an end? Well, yes, it is. And then they're going to see the same trouble come upon them. You need only read the book of Revelation. Because it tells us exactly that. It will happen because Shaul said, And God's way is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. God does not show favoritism. Yeshua is teaching us something else besides this. If we just look at the woman and her words. When she comes to him she says, Lord, son of David. And she gets not a word from him. Not a word. He gives her no response. Now no one is going to tell me that Yeshua did not know what was coming. And so this is all happening to teach us. He was a prophet. He saw the hearts of people. He could read your mail, so to speak. Just like he did the Samaritan woman. Read her mail. You've had many husbands. And the person you're living with now isn't your husband. Read her mail. Well, he could read this gal's mail too. So he knows what's going to happen. She calls him Lord and Messiah. And he doesn't even acknowledge her. The disciples do. But he says nothing to her at this point. And when he does respond, it is at his, at his disciples' request to send her away that he responds. The disciples ask him to send her away and he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, sorry, no help for you here. With that in mind, I want to read Matthew chapter 7. See what happens at the end of days. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, Yeshua tells us that at the judgment, there are going to be those who call him Lord and Messiah as well. And his response to them will be quite similar because they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. However, this woman This Canaanite woman, this low of the low in Jewish thought of the day, is at the end of her rope. And her request is for her child, and she will not be denied. And she said, yes, Lord. She said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This is one humble woman. There is no help for her in this world. She says, there is no help for her in this world. And so she goes to Yeshua. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs. In essence, she says, yes, Lord, I'm unclean. But even the unclean glean the scraps. She comes to and says, yes, Lord, you're right. I am nothing. I'm not clean that you should even notice me or speak to me. I'm unclean. I have no right. I have no promise of anything that you are here to bring. Those promises are for the children of Abraham. But you are Lord. And so I come to you because, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. I come because even the dogs eat the scraps from the master's table. And the to her was, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Her words say, I know, Lord, I'm not worthy of what was meant for the chosen, the children of Abraham. But Lord, I come to you because I know that even the dogs can eat the crumbs. You know, oh, that the nations, oh, that the church, would have come to that revelation. Perhaps there would have been no holocaust. The reply is very reminiscent of the reply of the centurion, to which Yeshua replied, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. The reply is, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. We did not finish the thought of Matthew chapter 7, so let's go back and take a look at this. Many will come to me on that day, And say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I'm going to tell you something. God is not impressed by your perceived deeds. He's impressed by your humility. He would have been impressed if these people would have come to him and said, Lord, Lord, didn't you do this in my presence? And didn't you do that in my presence? Though I'm nothing, though I had no promise through you or in your kingdom, Lord, I am unclean, I am nothing, but you, Lord, are the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, sin and rebellion." I know who you are. I saw it in the things that you did in my presence. When you drove out those demons, when you did those miracles, I saw you do those miracles and drive out those demons out of the unclean. Now, Lord, please have mercy on me as well. If not for my sake, for the sake of your name. That's what we see in the woman from Canaan. And what we don't see in the Pharisees who came to Yeshua that day. Yeshua is teaching us, get out of yourself. Humble yourself. Because we're nothing but dust. But He's able to take the dust and breathe life into it. Amen? Amen.